Yeah. Um, so, you know, you know, in Soviet Russia, you don't get cold. Cold gets you. Yeah. I thought of a lot of Yakov Smirnoff yeah. jokes watching this movie. <laughs> a lot. Like, too many. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, in, uh, in Soviet Russian uh, submarine movie, Crimson Tides You, I don't know. Crimson Tides <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's not nearly as gay as Sergei Eisenstein's, um, you know, uh, Whatever that crazy movie is, Battleship Potemkin with, uh, with the Odessa Steps, Battleship Potemkin. Yeah, yeah it's, it's How gay. Do I know that. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Because Sergei's gay. Well, I mean, I knew that, but I haven't seen Battleship oh, Potemkin. Oh yeah. Man. The 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 crew members look at each other in a longing oh, yeah. way. Oh yeah. yeah. There's there's definitely looks of longing. Mm. You know, so it's almost a sub movie there. It's weird that they didn't uh, get over that. You'd, you'd think uh, communism would have helped them get over that hump. Uh, socially socially yeah yeah they 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 are definitely regressive and backwards on that oh gee like we're one to talk hi are we are we are we on oh yeah okay hey um yeah so subs, i love america so much subs are better when they're gay uh well um, now that i know we're recording i do yeah. <laughs> so uh yeah hey welcome again to the good trash on cast we gather around table we discuss the films you'll never discuss in film space course this week's film is k19 the Widowmakers, which is not u571 the it movie is, about the enigma machine yes dalton was completely wrong last I, Week, Look, they came there's out. There's a lot of submovies. There's letters. There's numbers. It's a real deep impact Armageddon situation. Sorry, yeah. guys. A little bit, a little bit. But the this illusion one, is the prestige. Who yeah, knows? I got confused. This one stars Harrison Ford. This one is directed by Catherine Bigelow. This one is a very, very large budget independent film that flopped in the box office. But more on that anon, and it will never make its way into a film face course. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. Still Dalton. Hi. And we're still talking to you about the movies. Um, here we are, uh, five million episodes into this extravaganza. It what, does feel like it, yes. What number are we on now? This is uh, 333. 333. Oh, that's like a number of some power, right? It's like, uh, yeah, this is uh, GC uh, hyphen 333. Yeah. <laughs> it the seems sig- Yeah, it seems significant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There so, we go. Well, the, this is the Widowmaker episode <laughs> yeah. in which oh. one of us will become widowers. Oh, shit. <laughs> or, Wid- or, or one of widowers. our wives become widowed oh. because we can't stand each other. And one of us can't leave this room. I'm going to make us run drills, so help me God. <laughs> There's flooding in the kitchen. We go, will be, go, pre- go. We will be prepared to record <laughs> under any circumstances. I am not a fan of drills. But moving <laughs> right along. Um, yeah, we're here to do this thing in case you've tuned in for the very first time. This is not a review show. It is an analysis show. And that does mean we have to spoil the end, even though the end is sort of in the annals of history. But it's probably the annals of a bit of history that you don't know very much about. Um, and thus and therefore... Uh, to do analysis, we do have to spoil things, but we try to give you a break at the first part of the show in case you want to listen a bit and then catch the movie. And so we do it like this. Synopsis, spoiler free, thumbs up, thumbs down review, spoiler light, uh, expanding the syllabus, spoiler medium. And then finally, um, spoiler heavy is the area in which we get down to business. There's a musical cue and uh, we get down to that analysis. So you've been warned, dear listeners. So Arthur. Do you have a synopsis of the illustrious K-19, The Widowmaker? Yes. Would you read it? Yes. A box office flop, Catherine Bigelow's K-19, The Widowmaker, is a historical drama set in 1961. It is also her seventh feature film. Set during the Cold War, K-19 loosely tells the story of the Soviet Union's first ballistic nuclear submarine and the men who captain and crew it. After having his motives and intentions questioned, Captain Mikhail Polinin is demoted to executive officer. He is soon replaced by the much more rigid Captain Alexei Vostrikov. Upon his first inspection, Vostrikov fires the reactor officer for being drunk on duty. He is replaced with a fresh from Academy Vadim Radchenko. The Widowmaker's first days and inspections are continually filled with more bad omens as the ship's doctor is killed and the christening bottle won't even break. Once their mission to fire an unarmed test missile begins, Vostrikov begins pushing his crew and the ship to their limit. They do succeed, but the joy is short-lived as the reactor begins to fail. The entire crew have to work together to figure out a way to keep it from overheating. Radiation, poisoning, mutiny, and a potential world war are just a few of the dangers that threaten and affect the crew of K-19, the Widowmaker. A completely made-up nickname. They actually uh, called it Hiroshima. Yes. It's a pretty cool nickname, though. It's a, as nicknames go, it's not a great one. Well, I mean, you know, you want to have like a really metal nickname, you know, uh, like the Earth. Death Starker, you know, the Dark the Star. The Death Stark? They didn't have time to give it a nickname. Before uh, yeah. it the Death Stark. Yeah. The Death That's uh, Iron Man's nickname in Endgame. Well, I, was, I was doing <laughs> Death Stalker and Dark Star all at the same time, you know, I don't know. I just was very amused that the, uh, the sailors called it Hiroshima. That's... Uh, 
Oof, that's some grim. Wild. Grim. That, yeah. that is some gallows humor, dear listener, yeah. right there. I gotta be honest, Widowmaker? Better title. Better title. Um, yeah, yeah K-19, Hiroshima. Yeah. I, I would think they would think they were getting a different movie. <laughs> Much different. It turns yeah. out that the people that make movie titles are better at naming boats than the people that name boats. Yeah, the, well, <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you expect snakes on a plane on snakes on a plane. You would expect certain Did other you, things from a movie, K-19, fact, Hiroshima. Were those were made? <laughs> were those were, in fact, made. A couple. <laughs> Fun fact about snakes on, the pla- on a plane, you know they tried to change the title? No. And Sam Jackson said, absolutely not. The only reason I signed up for this was so I could be in a movie called Snakes on a Plane. Don't you dare change the title. This is why studios are wrong sometimes. Boom. Yeah, there you go. Um, well, hey, let's ask a very, very important beginning question. Mm-hmm. Hey, Dalton, do you like The Widowmaker? Tell me why or why not. I don't, but it's only because I like Catherine Bigelow, uh, and it's just not her best movie. Uh, we we have revisited uh, Catherine's filmography a lot on she this show. She let you down, did she, she? Well, she... No, not really. I mean, she did the best she could with what she had, but it's just not the, a terribly interesting story, unfortunately. Uh, fair. Uh, we'll get to that, though. Um, I do want to briefly mention, as Arthur said, uh, this was a huge flop at the box office. Uh, you want to know how bad of a flop it was? It only did $35 million domestic off a $100 million budget. That's bad. Yeah, nice. it did 30 worldwide for a total combined $65 million. 35 was about the lowest uh, that they were hoping to get, like, opening or no that's uh that's a different stat sorry um yeah not a great one for it uh opened at number four to 12 million it did not do good and uh what came out that first that weekend do you have that information pulled up i do as a matter of fact yeah just curious what else was out this is 2002 to set the scene so uh, i don't know what time of year this came out a uh, big, big summer release. Uh, came okay. out right uh, third weekend of July. That uh, Christopher Spider-Man. Nolan spot. Yeah, uh, Spider Man still in theaters. Yep. Oh, you're not going to believe this, honestly. You're really not. Number one, second week out. Road to Perdition. Really? really? Wow. Wow. How, wow. How the box office game has changed, boys. Huh. That movie does not get released in the summer anymore. No. It's also a very. I didn't know it did that well. Yeah, it did real good. Uh, did real good. It was sitting at. Uh, in, well, no, it didn't do that great. It ended at uh, 47. It was only in its second week. Uh, but yeah, it did 15 million that weekend. Uh, Stuart Little number two also opened that weekend. Opened at number two. Also, uh, had to fight against, uh, Men in Black 2. So, uh, rough weekend for it. Uh, coming in right after at the box office that weekend, another movie we've talked about on the show, Reign of Fire. Ooh. Ooh. That's yeah. a fun one. It, it does kind of sound like a set to Let's rank those situation. five movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Reign of Fire, K19, The Widowmaker. Done. The rest are pretty bad. What was the first one? Road to Perdition? Uh, okay, Road to Perdition. Road to Perdition. Sorry. One. Men in Black 2, guys. Men in Black 2 is garbage. garbage. Oh, you come get on. Mess. No, that movie no. is shit. No, that, it's fun. No, it's I am fun. a Men in Black apologist. I think 1, 3, and uh, International are all much better than 2. 2 is I agree with that. a stinker. I, I don't go so far as to say stinker. You're so wrong. Yeah. Anyway, we're anyway, not we're not talking about, about Men that. in Black too. It's a big dumb silly. Fun. We'll get anyway. we'll, we'll get to our uh, our Men in Black trilogy super episode at a, a later date. Uh, yeah, it's oh, Arthur got real excited <laughs> for that one. All right, well, shit, I shouldn't have writ writ, uh, writ that check. Uh, I guess I'm gonna have to cash <laughs> along with my butt. Uh, writ, writ, yeah, I'm, I'm buddy. I'm spitballing. You got it. They can't all land, man. Come on, cut me some slack. The majority I, don't. No, that's true. That's why I throw so many. I'm very <laughs> bummed out that Catherine Bigelow just couldn't couldn't lock this one down, though. Uh, it was weirdly uh, an independent uh, film, as we've talked about off air. Uh, Nat Geo put up a ton of money for this one, uh, but the studio system definitely it seems like was kind of using this as a tester for uh, female directors and million dollar budgets, uh, hundred million dollar budgets, and uh, they use this as an excuse. It sucks. Bigelow like basically went to retirement for the better part of that decade until the Hurt Locker came out, and uh, I mean, you know, great career. Careers are long. You get uh, interesting twists and turns, but it, it sucks that uh, you know this one didn't land because uh, the film histories might have been a little bit different. I like it. I do. I think the accents are bad, and that is fun. Uh, th- that's my hot take. I think the ac- bad accents make it a better movie. Uh, it's just a little bit more entertaining because uh, you get to laugh at Harrison Ford. Probably heard it uh, on initial release, but at the home watch, it's very charming because um, he's barely doing one, and it's it's just a bad movie. They should have gone the the Red October route, right? Like just let everybody have their accents. Mm-hmm. You can remind us that they're speaking Russian at the top of the movie, and then just let people do what they want. But uh, yeah, so uh, it just hurts that uh, y- you got young, the fresh faced until he gets irradiated. Pierce Skarsgård doing a better accent than your your two leads. It's just. It's not a good look for anybody. 
I think it's fun, though. I, I like, uh, as we've established on the show before, I love movies where everything is going wrong all the time, and this is kind of an er example of that. All the sub-movies often are. I mean, sub-movies are great movies for that kind of plot threading. Uh, I just I like the quirk of that the reason things are going wrong is because one of the characters keeps forcing them to go wrong. It is a really fun wrench to throw in the narrative gears, but it just doesn't make that exciting of a film. Like, the first half is just about their hard-ass boss and what it's like to work for him and also it turns out it's going to be the worst day they ever work together but we don't get there until like an hour and a half into this two-hour movie it's a long time before we actually get to the reactor breaking i mean we are deep within the the second act it feels like when something finally like happens and we're off to the actual plot of the film and you know i like a thinking movie i like a slow movie where it doesn't always get to the plot but for a thriller it just doesn't work super great uh, and I think that is what works against the film more than anything. The Bigelow directs it great. I mean, you get a sense of the claustrophobia. I think it looks fantastic. Um, I, I, I like uh, the 60s aesthetic of the sub. We've done, you know, we did Crimson Tide on this film, which is a, a 90s film, so completely different just visual landscape. Uh, and while this is no Crimson Tide, unfortunately, I think uh, what we do get is really cool visually. Uh, even some of that early CGI is not as dodgy as I expected it to be. It really was, uh, waiting for a lot worse. It just, it never lands as the problem. And, uh, I think Harrison Ford is a big part of that. Uh, although, uh, he, he is great in some scenes. He seems really unexcited about the material. And this kind of seems to be the start of the, the phase of his career. We all know him uh, and love him for these days, which is the, the part where, you know, you give him a couple million dollars and you hope you get a performance out of him. Uh, Because he does not get out of bed for cheap. Get out off of my plane. It's it's that era, really. Well, yeah, it's the firewall era. It's it's not. It's a Hollywood homicide with uh, Josh Hartnett. It's not a it's not a good time. Yeah, Uh, it'd be a while before we get to Blade Runner twenty forty nine, guys. We we got we got a couple of rough years to get through before we get there. Uh, but uh, it is an interesting turning point in, in Hollywood history. Again, in terms of uh, female directors, it's an interesting turning point in Catherine Bigelow's filmography. So I think there's some like really just interesting uh, touchstones about how we look at film around this that are, are kind of fun to glean on. But yeah, it's overall a disposable movie. It's not very good. Uh, you know, it, it's not some forgotten uh, uh, tragedy. It, it sucks. It's you know, it's not like Strange Days where it sucks that uh, people didn't love that movie when it came out. And this is just okay. Very good, very good. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Hey, Arthur, I hear you think different. I do. I I actually think it comes together quite well for the most part, especially once they're on the sub. Uh, Up front, I'll I'll mention I don't like the coda. I don't like that epilogue. I I don't think it works. Really? Um, Yeah. I I, kind of like it. I think it rushes too much. Mm. I think there's a lot of ground to cover. And I think there was just a struggle to get that told competently. So we deal with a lot of That's true. title cards. And then we have this time leap to kind of have this emotional beat to kind of pay that off of this character change. And I don't think it quite works as well. I guess I'll say I like it th- in theory because you're right. Yeah. It is kind of clunky. What I, I want to know is who carries 24 glasses and vodka to a cemetery? You don't? No. I mean, oh. I do if I know I've I'm got a briefcase. meeting people. Yeah. yeah. You, you carry a glass for everybody? If you know there's a party. Yeah, if I knew I invited guys. And they're all like different glasses. Do you bring your own glass to that party just in case? Do like all yeah, Russians carry I mean, a glass for drinking vodka in case there's a toast? Remind me after this. Honestly, we should all be doing that. Once we're done recording, I got to show you some glasses. <laughs> okay. I'm not joking. Uh, don't let me forget. We won't. Okay. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, I do think it, I think it is because of Bigelow's direction that this really does work at any level. I, I think that she's very good at putting together a taut suspense thriller element. I do think the stakes never feel as high as they should. I can agree with that, but I'm really here for the character drama. And I think that's where the disconnect in this film comes. And Mm. I can see that is that half the time it's trying to do this character drama thing. Half the time it's trying to be this thriller and, and, and it may not mesh as well for, for different, you know, viewers. And, but for me, it really did work. Um, I actually like Ford's performance quite a bit. He's doing this very wooden stoic type of performance. We don't really see from him. He's typically kind of a, Hothead, you know, bad boy, anti-hero. He's always type. funnier. Yeah, but he's much colder here than than we're used to, and I think that coupled with trying to do that accent uh, doesn't always pay off. But I, I, yeah, there's moments he lights up doing this material. I yeah. like the performance overall. I, I like the back and forth with Neeson, and, and you know, I, I I I just like the character elements of it. I think more than than really anything else. Um, I I honestly could have watched another twenty or thirty minutes of it, Whoa, and okay. really lived in this world. And I think in the end, in that coda, I think fleshing that out to a, be a little more impactful could have worked. Um, I'd read some theories, you know, that 
they had to keep this under wraps for so long. The story uh, that maybe Bigelow just kind of struggled with a way to put that together. Mm. And so I could see that element in, in play. Um, uh, visually, I think cinematography is great. There's a great tracking shot early in the film. Uh, where the doctor's running around on board and has to go off board to try to get some medicine when the truck's leaving. Uh, this oh, great one take thing that's really falling good. up to the boat and it's really, uh, putting an exclamation point on just how tight these chambers are, just how frantic and hectic everything is and how cramped everything is. Uh, and also kind of raising the stakes, uh, of just how much bad luck this ship actually has. Um, this is the second or third incident in a row where everything just seems to be coming up, falling apart for the ship. Uh, and, and then it's, you know, followed shortly after with the, uh, failure of the christening, uh, when they try to break the, that's a good moment. It. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think it does come together very well. I, I'm really interested in the way it's shot. You know, they, they had a track system along the ceiling, uh, to move the camera back and forth. And so they're capturing a lot of those close chambers, uh, shots in that, that manner. So I think it's showing, uh, the innovation of the crew and, and Bigelow as well. I, I think she's really smart, uh, in how she shoots and how she puts everything together. Um, you know, to Dalton's point, I, I, I would argue it is pretty disposable, but I, I, I do think there's a lot there to, to like and appreciate. And so for me, I, I really dig it. Uh, fair enough. Fair and enough. I'll, uh, I'll die on that hill. I, I'll tell you what, Arthur, as soon as you mentioned the cinematography, it's like, damn, he's right. He's really good. Let's find out who it was. You want to know who it was? Uh, it's uh, this guy by the name of Jeff Cronenweth. You might not know the name off the dome, but you know his work. Gone Girl, Social Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Fight Club. That's right. He's a Fincher there boy. Uh, yeah, some good looking movies on, uh, yeah. under his belt. And it's a, and it's a good looking movie. It is a good looking movie. And, and uh, my opinion is somewhere in the middle. I, I like the movie. I think it's fine. It's, it, it's, you know, a watch and go on kind of thing. You know, it's not a thing I'm mad about watching. I think the performance are fine. I mean, you you had me at Soviet Aslan. Um, I'm all about you know hearing what that's Soviet called. what Aslan. You know um, Liam Liam Neeson. Well, Liam Neeson. Uh, he's yeah. Aslan. I, he lost me for a second. Too. I thought you said Aslan, <laughs> and well, I was very confused. Uh, I mean, if you want to find a Soviet Aslan, Look, a go, submarine go is a good a spot to be. Yeah. a good place. Having a Scottish Rusky. Uh, is an interesting choice. Oh, boy, yeah, it is. Uh, it is a thing. Although well, we, we got that in a I didn't find October. my brother Russia vodka. I, I've met a few um, submariners in my life, and um, for those who have ears to hear, dolphin pins are weird. Moving on. Um, I want to Did you say, say dolphin pins, tho- dolphin pins. Those who, dolphin pin. Those who wear the dolphin pin. Moving on. Okay. Um, submariners. They're gotcha. weird. They're all weird. Interesting. Um, probably, no, probably not a, tall, a lot of tall guys, huh? Um, <laughs> sometimes. You, oh, no. Those poor guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. It'd be miserable, you, wouldn't it? You might poor be, guys and gals. You might be surprised. Um, I couldn't live on a sub. No, fuck that. I wouldn't have a chance. No, I'm, no. I'm, I'm out. Are you kidding me? I'm I'm out. lose my mind. Give me a deck. Give me a deck. For I'd sure. get stuck uh, between bunks and just be the cause and issue of so many problems. Yeah, board. that's fair. Yeah, you would have size issues. I'm just like, I don't, I don't want to be under, I don't want to be in this tube. I don't like airplanes. Yeah. Put it under water now? What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you want me in a compressed watertight seal? No, it's a bad idea. Um, I, don't, I don't like that. I'm doing a thing from another movie. Yeah, Moving on. Avengers. I gotcha. Um, so yeah, it, it, that being said though, I think the, the fundamental problem of the movie is the weight of history. Um, the decisions to, uh, again, sort of adapt a real life story about a real life submarine. And it's, it's one of those problems of adaptation. It's a moment where you're trying to be faithful to something that is historical and yet trying to create some dramatic tension here and there. And, um, the story itself does not lend itself to the kind of story that Bigelow is attempting to tell. It is a, you know, it really is um, put together as something of a of a high stakes thriller as a film, but really the story is about um, bungling and nobility and uh, pressures from the state and interpersonal tensions um, that go on throughout. And you know, I mean, doing that is is a challenge. I mean, there's one kind of movie that is a very slow, very talky, very sort of conceptual kind of movie, and then there is a very different movie that you could have just sort of jettisoned um to use a um a naval term um jettisoned some of history and moved into something more of an action thriller and i think really that's the problem is just picking a lane making a choice this is like some kind of uh weird uh stepchild of uh, das boot and crimson tide <clears throat> that doesn't come together yeah you know the thing you said dustin that uh, all the, the things you mentioned that are what the real like heart of the dramatic tension in the story is these you know ties between uh, your, your brothers in arms and the state and the party and like all these really interesting things about like this very specific Soviet military masculinity. And you can tell Bigelow's interested in that. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, she goes on to make two movies in a row about the U S military. So she's very obviously interested in, I mean, her career has always been kind of fascinated by masculinity. Uh, 
I think that's what bothers me. I can see the stuff that she's really interested in because it comes to the surface. Mm-hmm. In those moments, you can see see the film like letting it go there. Um, I just want more of it. Yeah, there's so much there there that we don't get enough of it. And I think it bothers me enough to keep me from liking it as much as Arthur does because I agree it's a well made and fun movie to watch. Right, but I, and again, so that tension I think is what brings about some of that wonkiness, and I experience it too. But I, I'm less bothered by it mm. because I can just sort of take the I just sort of took the thing as it was, mm. you know, and 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 you know just moved on. Uh, with it there um you know i mean vasily arkhipov um liam neeson's character um that's who it actually was who's on the boat who saved the world the next year yeah the guy he was actually based on yeah yeah yeah, he um said yeah the reason why we're here in this room right now podcasting is because of liam neeson's character yeah Uh, they changed the name but that dude stopped the the nukes from getting shot at uh the cuban missile crisis he kept us all from dying so um yeah um, hooray good job here's to world heroes and then and no death. Um, so we're all in favor of that. But that, again, those kind of pressures and those kind of adaptation sort of issues do cause a little bit of a disconnect that makes it just a little, I guess my experience of it is just slightly uneven. Mm. I, I like it. It's fine. It's fun. But it's slightly uneven for me. And that's sort of my highest criticism that I can really give it. Everything else, the performances, the cinematography, as we said, the CGI works. Um, the action beats. The editing is really good as well. And so I like a lot of what it's doing. It's just the story, the narrative itself, it's it's a problem in terms of scripting, um, picking a lane and doing what you need to do uh, to write this kind of story, um, or just pick what kind of story you're going to write. As it turns yeah, out, which is why it explains. She, I mean, she ends up with Mark Bowles doing Hurt Locker and uh, uh, I almost just call it the Bin Laden movie, Zero Dark Thirty. Now that, that, it's uh, a well, that's I couldn't think of that for a second. Uh, but you know, it, it goes to show. I mean, she she's obviously very interested in these kind of processy uh, military procedural movies and goes to a, a journalist to help her write those those more often. How do we find the exciting drama in the authenticity, right? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, well, there you go. I listener. do want to see her Cuban Missile Crisis movie now that you mentioned uh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would be cool, right? Does no, she she's have not it? working on one. I, I just like, want to see it. I was like, I'm just I'm, picturing it in my brain. I mean, preview of things to come. There is a Cuban Missile Crisis movie to appear, but I guess we should get to that because we need to expand the syllabus, dear listener. Um, that being said, the syllabus expansion section of this particular show is this. We are pretending that we are teaching a class in a academic city setting. It could be a cinema class itself. It could be a history class, a sociology class. It could be um, perhaps a home economics class in which um, this film has been chosen. I doubt that would well, be... Well, uh, hold on. You could teach a lot about home repairs using this movie. You know, um, there's amazing things that you can do if you, jury, right? yes. if, if you are not scared to cannibalize the parts you have you can make something happen um, yeah. you know what yeah Economics. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. Homac. We right. did it. Yeah. I'm so proud of you boys. Yeah. Um, also, cooking with a limited supply and in a canned space mm-hmm. with only tinned foods. Yeah. What do you do if all of your foods are radiated? <laughs> Don't give them fresh fruit. You drink red wine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot. Um, but that is the assignment. And so we are um, talking about a class that we are teaching in which this is a module or part of a section of teachings and how we, we would uh, build out from this film or add other films to that said module or that sort of total syllabus for a total class, um, we have a bit of freedom there, academic freedom, you might even say, uh, to do what we want. So I'm going to go to you first, Arthur. I just want to say real quick that I am shocked that Dustin is going to put the pivotal uh, Cuban Missile Crisis movie X-Men First Class on his syllabus. I Uh, am not, actually. (laughs) The uh, essential, yeah. Yes, but for mine, uh, I'm going to... Uh, just so this is like a probably a couple days in class uh, study, uh, I came across this article, K-19, The Widowmaker, uh, Soviet Nuclear Disaster, Bigelow Style, uh, from Andrew Todd on uh, Birth Movies Death. Like that Andrew Todd. Um, and it's a pretty good article kind of arguing about uh, Bigelow's processes with this film through the lens of the recently critically acclaimed Chernobyl, uh, which would be the other pairing I would put with this. I haven't seen it. I want to, but from everything I gather, I think it would be the perfect pairing. It's not just a television show, Arthur. It's, just, it's, home, uh, it's home box office network, maybe. Yeah. Um, but uh, obviously a lot of the same kind of the confidential crises and mm-hmm. all those elements there that line up and also radiation poisoning obviously plays a huge part in both. Yeah, you um, mentioned off air that uh, Bigelow uh, realized she couldn't get his as gross as it actually gets because people would like it would strain credulity yeah she didn't think uh, you know if you went full full fallout that uh people would buy it Um, so interesting which it it is and you know in 2002 it might be a little harder to digest some of that and i think that's what he comes to in this article is that 
uh, Bigelow style of filmmaking here isn't necessarily uh, a restrained thing. It's just playing it safe, uh, kind of at all levels that he compares it to a lot of the other blockbusters of that time of 2002, which were a little more safe. Uh, I think part of this is just obviously we're less than a year removed from 9-11, uh, which definitely impacts how we do a lot of stuff. Yeah, a lot of these films are probably in pr- the films that came out the year probably had massive changes in their production. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I think Bigelow does manage to get some interesting messaging in there. I want to talk, maybe we can talk about that American propaganda scene a little later and Bigelow's work. But, uh, yeah, I, I think just kind of introduction of setting this up of Westerners, uh, dealing with Russia. Uh, I think this would be a good jumping off point. Then I would probably kick it over to one of you two to, uh, finish the class. Very good, very good. Well, I'm going to go right then to you, Mr. Dalton Stewart. How are you going to expand this here syllabus? Yeah, it turns out a lot of our interests uh, were aligned this week. So as Arthur and I uh, did a few shows ago, um, we are, uh, we're, we're, we're teaming up. Uh, all of us kind of had interesting uh, uh, thoughts on, on specifically how does Hollywood engage with Russia. So uh, my, my section is going to be a ho- Hollywood and the Fall of the Wall. Um, and kind of looking at three films that are very much uh, Western productions and how they are kind of obsessed with Russia in this 10-year period, 20-year period uh, after the fall. Um, because the ones that I really wanted to center on were, were all films that were released from like 98 to 08. We're going to be looking at other than K-19, obviously. Uh, Eastern Promises, Enemy at the Gates, and uh, Anastasia, the animated film uh, that uh, did not do so great, as I recall. Um, I'm not going to go looking for that box office right now, though. But I, I think these are three films that are looking at different periods of, of Russia uh, as a uh, political entity. Uh, obviously, Anastasia, we've got you know the the pre-Soviet um, Tsar. Uh, what do they what do they call it? Kingdom? Um, I don't know what they call that. The Empire. Empire. It's a Russian that's right. Empire, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Because he's right. an emperor. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I can't remember what they call it. Who cares? Uh, well, probably the Russian people. But I think. Society has been very fascinated with this uh, tale of murdered nobles for a very long time. Uh, you know, people want to people want to talk about it, um, even if that's not always the story to be talking about. But uh, there's been this fascination with uh, the Romanovs and the potentially survived daughter, uh, and selling that story as a off-brand Disney Disney princess movie is. <laughs> fucking fascinating the fact that this movie exists is wild bartok the bat and his Talking weird bat. canadian accent it's so weird it, it also kind of sounds like he's with go- the who and the hyana and then i'd kick her sir yeah it's, it's so also like funny. kind of a vaguely peter laurie voice yes. it's a voice that is sitting in a weird spot we gotta do a non-disney animated movies marathon mm, we like got to. american yeah yeah a non-disney uh, Ooh, american we do fire hand-drawn and animation oh, studios fire and ice Oh, there's some there's some programming time yes. friends that have to happen. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that. Uh, yeah, this is just a weird movie, and again, I, it doesn't no fall of the Soviet Union. This movie don't get made. Uh, so pivoting off of that, we're going to go look at uh, another really interesting one, a French filmmaker, but a big American production. It's Enemy at the Gates, uh, the uh, the sniper movie. You guys remember this one, right? Jude Law, uh, Rachel Weisz gives him a handy, surrounded by a bunch of uh, other dirty Soviet uh, soldiers. It's a weird movie. Uh, but it's also fascinating because it, it it is giving Hollywood this chance to be like, hey, uh, we haven't been talking about this because we immediately went into a cold war with these these cats, but uh, cool stuff they did during the war, huh? They 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 sure did kill fascists. Good. Uh, we can be friends with them now that they stop being communists. Uh, and again, it's just an interesting period in Hollywood, and again, an interesting movie that is all kind of about uh, the, the the real. Ab- oppressive nature of the war as it was experienced in Russia, right? And it was a totally different fight. It was a fight for your home. Uh, and it was a much dirtier, more guerrilla fight that was also enforced by the state that was going to shoot you if you ran away. So, mm-hmm. you, but you, I mean, it was a hard... They, they, we had a draft, they had a conscription, and they sound similar, but boy, howdy, can they be different in action. Uh, and it's just, it's a good movie. It's, you know, it's not the best movie, but it's a fun war movie. And again, I think a really interesting look at hollywood saying sorry we ignored russia for so long let's let's talk about it uh the next one we're going to end with is uh, yet another period of russian history uh modern russian history examined by hollywood and it's the the post fall and the the proliferation 
of uh, Soviet, I'm not going to say Soviet, Russian organized crime uh, throughout the world. And it's Eastern Promises, the David Cronenberg movie. This one's not a Hollywood movie. I kind of cheated on this one, but it is still a U.S. production, a U.S. Canadian bridge. There was a lot of money in on this movie. It's North American. It's a North American production. It's still Westerners. Uh, Russia very much distinguishes itself as separate from Europe. So this is still Western production. Uh, I did cheat on the Hollywood uh, metrics, but, you know, Cronenberg's a known name. You got your Naomi Watts. You got your Vigos. That's a Hollywood movie. That's a big cast. You have your naked bathhouse fight. Well, and yes, we, we have neglected to mention it's the nakedest of the movies I've mentioned and also the best of the movies I've also, mentioned. Also, an Arsenal fan dies, and I'm very happy about you that. You don't like that Arsenal, do you? I don't like Arsenal. Uh, well, he's a fictional Arsenal fan, so I won't chastise Dustin for wishing people to be dead. No, uh, I only want fictional Arsenal fans uh, to die. Living real well, Arsenal fans are fine. They, they just need Well, to they all need diarrhea. But that's a completely <laughs> different thing. Uh, Eastern Promises is a fantastic film. It I mean, is good. so good. Uh, and uh, one of the few films about uh, a very uh, interesting, secretive, fascinating uh, thing in our world, and that's Russian organized crime. The uh, the Vor are uh, really interesting. Uh, if you thought uh, the Mafia took that whole secret society crime thing uh, for their own, Boy, howdy, they did not. Uh, the Russians were having their own party with uh, secret tattoos that mean secret things. It's cool as heck. Uh, it's also very, very bad. Uh, it's just, look, it's cool to talk about crime when it's a movie. And thanks, movies, for letting us talk about how crime can be cool sometimes. Uh, but again, I, I think this is a much more complicated, nuanced film because it is all about human trafficking and reminds you that crime means real people who are really suffering. Uh, great film. Uh, and again, another fascinating look at Russia uh, from uh, from different eyes. Now, Dustin, you are also wanting to talk about Hollywood and uh, how it feels about the our, our, our fine Soviet friends. It sounds like together we have created an entire class of looking so. at Russia from the West. Now, are you doing, teamwork? Are you doing all Soviet era, or you got a little bit of mix and match like I do? No, I'm, 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 there are, there are things that are about the Soviet era that are made after it, but yeah, it's all Soviet era stuff. Gotcha. And that's, so, that's what I meant. Yeah, Stories. and uh, so uh, beginning with reading, I think reading's important. It's so Francis Fukuyama's The End of History is an important essay and talking about the fall of the Berlin Wall and later the Soviet Union and that whole discussion of the the history of the great battle between capitalism and uh, socialism and how um, you know the argument is that neoliberalism wins the day and uh, that's the end of quote-unquote history. And so it's an interesting thesis and would be a part of our discussion. I think that would be important to – I think he needs to publish a follow-up, huh? Yeah, maybe so. Um, because there's a thing that happens after neoliberalism, um, and there's a pattern that seems to be emerging these days. Um, that thing is fascism, nonetheless. <clears throat> so, um, that's one thing to begin in with. In Brazil, right? Um, you mean in Brazil? I mean... Not here. Also Brazil. <laughs> Okay, carry on. Moving on. Um, another thing I think we would look at in terms of just historical uh, retellings of just history itself is uh, Oliver Stone's great little Netflix series, The Untold History of the United States of America. And really? We, it's, a, it's a great little um, sort of um, – I don't know what you'd call cross-reading. It's not like a people's history, like Howard Zinn's famous... Um, would you, would you uh, call it Russian Federation propaganda? I would not. Okay. I, I would call... I just, I just know Ollie's uh, real tight with uh, Vlad these days. No, I mean, he maybe he is. Um, I don't actually no, know. No, that's a real thing you don't know about? No, this? We'll talk about, about it off-air. But he does talk a lot about the Soviet um, role in winning World War II. He does mm -hmm. talk a lot about um, the sort of uh, negotiations between Khrushchev and uh, Kennedy, later Nixon, and uh, what's going on behind and uh, before for the Iron Curtain, and so I think his historical perspectives are very, very interesting. I mean, he's got some fascinating stuff just about um, the vice presidency under Roosevelt and uh, how things went um, and got us Truman uh, rather than someone else. And uh, so it's, it's really just sort of like the untold history. There's other ways to sort of think about it, and he keeps imagining another possible world there, and I find that fascinating. So uh, there's three or four episodes of that that are pertinent to the uh, Cold War um, that would be worth watching. And then um, Chena Mielville, uh, who is a, a weird fiction writer, um, wrote a great little history of the uh, Soviet Revolution. Uh, he's a British writer, um, so we're still in the West, though not in the United States. And his book, October, um, I recommend highly to sort of, again, to sort of see a different history of what went on in 1914 to 17, um, gearing up for the Russian Revolution and the killing of, um, you know, all the czars and all those folks. And Anastasia, she died. Yeah, um, she did. She, she died. Well, uh, now that uh, that's so, I'm so glad that linked in with Anastasia. But I got movies, too. Oh, you you do have there, some there, films. There are movies too. So I'm um, thinking about just the the fear of the Red Scare. I think the uh, original 1960s Frank Sinatra starred, uh, also featuring um, what's your name, um, the teapot from Beauty and Angela the Beast, Lansbury. Angela Lansbury, who is um, 
yeah, she's she's creepy. Uh, in uh, the Manchurian Candidate, and so the original are they version, pumping? Um, they are pumping. They pumping in that one too. Yeah, uh, they, they it's it's much more subtle, but yes, they are, mm. Mm, and maybe worse in that sense because it's Angela Lansbury, and you just feel wrong. I felt uh, wrong about it when it was Meryl Streep, but uh, yeah, uh, see our episode over the remake starring Denzel. Yeah, um, pumping. She wrote. Uh, <laughs> So I would go with that. I would also go with uh, 13 Days, um, the 2000 film. Good movie. Um, it was starring Kevin Costner about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And again, just sort of negotiating some of that life um, of... Dis- it's, a, it's a Bobby Z joint, right? It, it's, a, uh, it's a Bobby Z joint. Bobby Z's connected to it, but... I, you keep talking about how good it is. I'll double uh, yeah, check. It's a good movie. I mean, Bruce Greenwood's great in it. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of great performances. But again, just sort of understanding and looking at this view of what Russia was or is, and again, this sort of bumbling Russia that we tend to see uh, throughout these kinds of histories. Did you figure out who the You're director? not going to believe this shit. Okay. It's so Roger Donaldson, uh, the director of Cocktail Species of the World's Fastest Indian. Uh, <laughs> not really, really, I would have bet money that was a Robert Zemeckis movie. Otherwise, I wouldn't have called it a Bobby Z joint like an idiot. Wow. wow. I, yeah, I, well, you said that, and I went, well, I mean, he sounds very confident, and I just kind of went with it. It feels like a Zemeckis movie. Yeah. Is all I'm saying. It does kind of feel like a Zemeckis movie. So it's, it's, it's a good flick, though. It's much better from Mr. Donaldson than um, some of his other. Oh, well, you never seen Species? Uh, I have seen Species. Well, that's an American classic, baby. Apparently, <laughs> he hasn't seen Cocktail. I How dare not. you besmirch Roger Donaldson, one of our <laughs> finest filmmakers? You cur. The great auteur. So, yeah, our syllabus just got lots and lots and lots longer. And Yeah, uh, you made me feel dumb with all your reading. So, I don't know. Uh, they suggest some good books in the last podcast on the left uh, series about Rasputin, if you want even more context about the, the Russian Revolution and uh, the uh, the royal family. So, well, there you go, dear listener. I think now, though, it's time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. And that business is, as always, analysis. So let's talk about African-American characters in this uh, particular film. Oh, wait, no. Russia, uh, also very racist. Yeah. Um, no, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about, um, bumbling Russians and, uh, yeah. just the sort of, again, the historical context and the way in which the West typically, um, depicts the Russian space program, uh, the Chernobyl accident. Yeah. And there, there seems to be a, a, a level of negligence that is a theme throughout, um, these films, which makes it seem almost on purpose that anybody with any sense would have seen what was going on, and none of this would have happened. And that simply just isn't the case. They were doing the best they could with what they had. Same as any, yeah, same as any group of people in history. Right. And but there's a way in which, um, again, the sort of propaganda machine of the West works in in depicting these kinds of roles um, or these kinds of you know international politics, where they're just they're a bunch of knuckleheads, you know. And the only people who are good at what they do, the only people who are wise and smart and intelligent, are basically Americans or want to defect to America with a large Soviet asset. I'm looking at you, Sean Connery and Crimson Tide, right? And uh, you made a smile face. I was just picturing uh, Sean Connery, uh, that monologue. He gets to the top of that movie. Oh, yeah. We'll go now into the... I can't remember. He talks about their silent engines Mm. and serving with their fathers and how great it is to to be Soviet. It's a kick-ass speech. Yeah. And, of course, he's very competent, very excellent, and wants to defect to the states. Right. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's ways in which, um, it deglamorizes, again, the choice of, um, Liam Neeson's character to be renamed something Polinin instead of, um, Vasily Arkhipov. Um, uh, Arkhipov's just a little bit harder to say, too, I think. Well, I think that's I mean, probably a big part of it. If you're gonna, I mean, I, yeah. I'm, I'm also, I didn't get to do any, uh, research on that. I was also very curious about the, uh, the choice to change him to somebody yeah, I, else. I don't know. I didn't read anything as to why. Did you see anything about the why? Couldn't find that? anything, just that, no, that it was changed. Uh, and again, we're talking about a person who, um, had, uh, had an overriding, had a veto vote amongst three different submarine captains in the, um, the, the Caribbean during the Cuban Missile Crisis where, um, there was a, there was a blackout in terms Presumably of- Presumably got this gig because of K-19. Yeah. Yeah. He got, he, so he gets everybody out and they're safe and, you know, they finally make it back and whatnot. And so he's kind of like an admiral kind of level commander, even though he's not that high ranking on his particular boat that he's on. And, um, because they're out of communication and they, uh, the plan was that the war was going to start. 
but they were out of communication. They didn't ever hear that it did start thing, and people were deciding whether or not they're going to shoot blind missiles to the United States. They're going to blow up the Florida coast and most of the eastern seaboard with nuclear weapons is the plan. And Arkhipov says, we did not hear the go order. We are not going to go. They may not have attacked us, and if that is the case... We're not going to start the end of the world and uh, was, um, you know, he actually was um, censored for what he did uh, initially. Badass. And uh, but, yeah, he did the right thing and saved the world. And, yes, he does look like a strong character. Yes, he looks like a man to whom the rest of the crew is quite loyal in the course of the film. But um, that sort of erasure there is is part of, again, an overwhelmingly Western um bias to not to talk about russians like they're big dum-dums well i'm gonna quibble with you a little bit there, okay. Dustin, because i think I, I think this film is a lot more nuanced and even-handed than that i think again i think bigelow as a filmmaker is legitimately interested in these men and their story and i, I think she does them i don't think she does them a disservice at all uh i i think neeson and ford's characters are both and i'm just gonna call them by their actor names because i'm not That's gonna fair. take a swing at these these russian names can i buy a bell yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to show how dumb I am, uh, if I don't have to. I, I think they are both portrayed as loyal ultimately to the men that they serve, the, the men whose lives they are responsible for. And they are both shown doing so like nobly and courageously, uh, and with good character. And they both are swept up in the pull of history that is the fact that their government wants this damn submarine in the water. Which is a real thing, right? Yeah. The Soviets were not prepared to put a uh, nuclear-powered submarine in the water. But by the virtue of living in a totalitarian state, somebody says, make something happen. You better make it happen. Uh, and it is these men who are loyal to each other wrestling with a state that they all seem to believe in very deeply. And I think that's the thing that is interesting about this movie that I want more of. Because as you've, you've said, Dustin, I mean, the, the Russians get portrayed as very dumb, brainwashed uh, by their their state, and obviously, yeah, there is some brainwashing going on in the Soviet Union because I mean, that's just how re-education camps work. Sure, but uh, th there is this element of true belief in in the system to some of these people that is really interesting, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's not even the belief in the Soviet system; it is just belief in Russia and like, well, this is what Russia is doing now, so we're doing that because we like again. It's the same kind of interesting nationalism you get from a U uh, a movie about the U.S. military, right? This. Very dyed in the wool kind of. I love being in the damn army type stuff. Uh, I, there's no better job in the corps. Like all, all our uh, military, I almost said army movies. I'm so sorry. All military movies uh, really do at least have a little bit of that, right? Just mm -hmm. even yeah. if it's a, a sarcasm. I, I think in a lot of uh, Jamie Fox and Jarhead, he's got some fun lines about "Welcome to the Suck" and uh, really uh, clearly making jokes about how he hates the corps. But uh, even when it's tinged with sarcasm, there is that that spirit of, hey, man, we're here together. We, yeah. we are stuck here together, and we're going to make this damn job work. And, and I think it lets those characters have that. Uh, it's It reminds me a lot of uh, the, the Metal Gear Solid franchise, of all things. Uh, Hideo Kojima really... Uh, throughout that franchise seems interested in this idea that soldiers aren't loyal to states, right? Mm. That they are fundamentally loyal to each other more than they are loyal to their governments. And I, I think this movie teases with that idea a little bit. Uh, and I honestly think it's part of what makes it super interesting you is know, that I, these I, soldiers aren't dumb. Right. I, well, I think that in terms of interpersonal relationships, I guess I'm talking about Russia being foolish overwhelmingly, that um, that they, they, they're, they're unable... to outmatched. They're, they're, well, they are definitely outmatched, yeah, but... Don't. I don't know. I'm with I, Dalton, I think. Maybe. I think you're right. I think there is something. There is a there there. I mean, yeah. it is a definite trope in it, Western stories about specifically Soviet Russia. It feels like the reactor was made out of bailing wire and duct tape before they had to jury rig it. Yeah, that's fair. And you're right. I mean, they do show that they are like, they, this is a ship that is just like everything is going wrong. Yeah. Right. They are just, it's a patchwork job at best. They don't have the most qualified people on board. And it's absolutely correct that the technology was not there, but it doesn't sort of justify that. It justifies it basically just out of uh, Russian pride and negligence and sort of, uh, again, sort of uh, this chest puffed out kind of attitude, which is I'm certain is part of, is a sure, factor sure. that's accurate. But it's not yeah. the only factor to consider. I mean, there again, we've talked about this off mic. We're talking about a state that's in an existential crisis every day of its existence, yeah. that any day it could fall, any day it could stop existing. And when you put that kind of pressure on a state, there are 
there are certain sacrifices and shortcuts that are sometimes made because you've, you've got to sort of put a thing forward. We think about some of the weird provocations of Kim Jong-un. Um, again, another state that is constantly under threat for its existence. The reason why the nuclear race has been what it has been and the reason why some of the failed attempts and other attempts have sort of moved their way forward and, and so much money is dumped into that particular section of the economy uh, in North Korea or in Russia is because they – feel the need to make sure that there's a sign that someone – again, this is a plot point in the movie – that the West will see us get the sub up and launch a test missile. They have to know that we can kill them. And that way they'll leave us alone, right? Yeah. It's sort of the idea. I guess that's fair. I think uh, – and again, the, the more interesting version of that movie deals with that more explicitly. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. You're, yeah. you're right. The, the, the film – if you. To be a smart film really does assume some literacy on the part of the, the viewer, which yeah, it's a summer blockbuster. So no, you don't you don't have that assumption going in. So yeah. you're right. The more nuanced takes of this movie do assume like a little intelligence. I guess what I'm saying is I, know, I think the film does a good job of if you do know what the situation was, you can kind of understand where everybody's coming from. And I think some of those shortcomings are just spoken to by the narrative. You know, ask. You know, we've got to have this reactor fail, so it has to be. You know. A bit inept. We have to have this boat. It has to be a bit inept. And I think some of those shortcomings come from there. Yeah. Um, from to, the historical truth of it. Yeah. And to the erasure point you mentioned earlier about the captain, uh, I, I did some in-depth research while we were talking. And, oh, uh, good oh, job. Did you? Uh, it turns out that they sent the initial draft of the script to the original crew huh. um, who had quite a few quibbles with it and asked for a lot of names to be changed out of respect for the crew and their families. Gotcha. So that might speak. And again, I think that might come back to just how much Bigelow's hands were tied by the kind of – uh, covertness of this story to begin with. I mean, this was kind of swept under the rug for decades. Yeah, right. I, did, I did read that they uh, they were like the, the handcuffs were like we didn't have handcuffs on the boat. We wouldn't, no, there wouldn't have been a mute. Like, come on! But they also liked the movie a lot. They, they did. Uh, they they thought did. Harrison Ford's performance was awesome, which is adorable. They did dump the cute. small arms. I mean, there was not an actual mutiny, but there was a moment at which they oh, really? removed the small arms uh, cash um, that was held on the boat. For fear of a mutiny possibly happening, I didn't read that. That's so. Very that's so. I mean, again, and I mean, but I mean, that's a good dramatic choice is yeah. to have an actual mutiny happen. You have to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, in, in any sub movie, a mutiny is the thing that like yes. you're waiting to see. You got a sub wild captain. You yeah. got a mutiny. You yeah. must relieve the captain of command at least once. It's in the rule book. <laughs> yeah. That's just how sub movies work. Genre one hundred and one. Well, yeah. and that's the exciting thing about a submarine movie, right? If it takes place after nineteen forty six. There's nukes on that boat. Yeah. I mean, it, that's the fascinating thing about sub-movies is they're, they're always taking place seated upon the ability to start the end of the world. Right. Uh, and again, I, I think the film has that gravity, right? It takes in a, to the point of just uh, going to bat for its depiction of, of Russians. I think the, the moment that I really responded to is when Liam Neeson and Harrison Ford kind of dropped the bullshit and they stopped posturing with each other. And he's like, what are we doing here, bud? Like, tell me what, why are you doing this? And he's like, okay, it's not that I'm too proud to surrender. It's that I'm afraid this motherfucker is going to blow up while they're trying to rescue us. And then we start World War Three. Right. We have to crash the sub at the bottom of the ocean. If this thing, like we have to make sure that the Americans and this NATO base don't get hit with nuclear fallout or, our homeland's dead. Right. And I think that's a really interesting moment where it lets the Ford character go. I promise I'm not an idiot. I know what I'm doing. And it's, it's fun to like have that character who's so mysterious and opaque for the whole, whole film finally kind of like show what he's playing with a little bit. And I think that's the moment that for me says, you yeah, know, these people, these are smart guys. These are guys that care about not starting the end of the world. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And I do like the camaraderie sa- aspect that we talked about. I think the, the sort of most powerful section of that is when we're sending the men in by twos to work on... Um, Brutal. The, which, yeah. is, I mean, the makeup there is awful, and uh, nuclear you know, radiation poisoning is a terrible, terrible thing. But I, I need think, more Skarsgård, man. Uh, the, the I'll key, tell you what, I need more Skarsgård. The key moment is the character who doesn't go the first time out of cowardice who goes ahead yeah. and goes later. That's why yeah. I need more of them. Yeah. yeah, there's not... And that's I think that's another failing of the film, though, is we just... Everybody's got a so uh, I keep saying Soviet because that's why I've switched my brain to we, we everybody keeps uh, has Russian surnames has military haircuts and is doing bad accents like it's very hard to keep characters straight yes, because we're not giving very a lot of details yeah we don't get a lot of details there's the dude with the thick mustache yeah uh, there's chief yeah and then there's a whole bunch of 
similar guys. There's the doctor who looks like Jonathan Price. There's, there's the religious icon guy. guy. Yeah. <laughs> there's everybody. Yeah. There's the guy who's actually Russian. There's yeah. There's a chef's jacket. Yeah. Come on. Uh, they're easy to tell. Apart. I really do like that actor whose uh, name I'm not going to look up right now. The, the guy in the jacket. The the guy the party rep who's uh, uh, the, yeah. the the actor who is actually Russian. Yeah. Like he's him. quite good. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, no, I we don't have a character to hang our hat on in this film, right? Like we think Skarsgård's going to be this audience surrogate, this fresh face out of the academy. And we don't really get anything out of them other than that he's gonna get, he's about to get married, which is how we know he's definitely gonna die before yes. this movie's over. And the, that's a bummer because I, I like that turn, that character who says, no, I am not going in that reactor. Absolutely not. Sees what the stakes are after he chickens out and goes, all right, I feel really bad about this. Uh, the guys who I am, who are under my command are dying. I'm the only one that can fix this. I gotta do this. Like it's, it's a cool moment, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, I need more of it. Right. And I, I think it really hurts the film. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think it does sort of play into, again, just this idea of loyalty and the, the way in which there is, there's a razor's edge between uh, courage and cowardice. And I think that's one thing that um, this film does dare to mention, that uh, oftentimes when we see cinematic portrayals, people are brave and they're always brave and they're always doing the brave thing at all times. And, and, and the, and the fact of the matter is human beings are complicated and there are moments where the, the reason, the difference between courage and cowardice really is the option where you're in a situation where you can do nothing else. And if the nothing else happens to be brave, you're courageous. And if the nothing else involves something where you can run away, you bloody well run away. I mean, it's, it, 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 I mean, there are exceptions, of course. Yeah. But for the most part, and throughout human history, that is what you do: is you are either are doing the super, super brave thing, or you are running away. Um, there's a great uh, moment in uh, the uh, Star Trek series, Star Trek Week Six Nine, uh, where um, Jake Sisko. Uh, who is um, Captain Sisko's son, is uh, marooned on a planet during a uh, sort of military incursion. And there's a moment where he runs away, and there's a moment where he defends a tunnel. And both situations are, are sort of that kind of thing, where mm-hmm. he, has a, he has an opportunity to get away, and so that's exactly what he does. He rabbits, right? And nobody finds out, nobody catches him, nobody sees anything, and they don't know anything about it. But then later on, there's, um, there's a place where he's backed against the wall, and all he can do is hold this hole. Isn't there a West Wing episode that's about this, too? I don't know. Maybe. This uh, sounds really familiar. There's something that's about uh, somebody about to get a military accommodation. It turns out they only were in a position to do something heroic because they did something cowardly prior. Mm, I don't know if it's a West Wing or not. If anybody out there knows what I'm talking about, let me know. Isn't this the plot to Dunkirk? Uh, oh shit! Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Uh, but honestly, good point. That's not what I'm thinking of. But yeah, great pull, Arthur. Yeah, it's, it's that kind of thing. Is that there, there's a, there's really a razor's edge there, and it's just which which one you happen to have get, gotten caught doing. And what happens uh, in the in that particular episode of Star Trek is there is a soldier who shoots himself in the foot to get uh, to get wounded, huh. and uh, so he's going to get you know sent to the brig and you know um, court martialed and uh, have to face military justice and all that kind of stuff uh, for what he has done and. Uh, Jake sort of realizes, you know, that could have been me. I could have been that person. And so that, that Skarsgård arc, I think, is is huge. Big and moment, yeah. It, because what motivates the final act of courage is almost always uh, a motivation to help others. To, to, that you can, and then you will. And I think that is where military courage sort of comes in. It, it, when it comes to just me, I'm, you know, I'm just going to, if it's only me and I'm the only one at stake, I'm definitely taking care of me. I'm not going to die for nothing, right? Yes. But at the same time, if I can protect my brothers and my sisters um, now in the 21st century, if I can protect them, then whatever it takes, and if it includes my body, then that's fine. Well, I think that's another, uh, goes to show another reason that that character arc works. And again, is what makes me want more of it, right? He's the new guy on the boat. It would not make sense for him immediately to throw his body on the line because he mm-hmm. doesn't know these people. These are not his brothers. These are not. This is not his family. He doesn't know these these cats. But it is when he realizes like the gravity of the sacrifice that has been made and the gravity of like wh- how bad it's going to be if this goes sideways. Like yeah, it's 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 a great moment. You're absolutely right. Um, you we we talked a little bit about this already. Um, we've invoked the character of the the party representative, which is like the uh, the Soviet military equivalent of a chaplain, basically. Yes. Um, it was their their role in the Soviet military. Uh, and that brings up something very interesting that we haven't talked about yet. That is what happens when your military isn't an apolitical entity, right? Uh, and I touched on the, this Hideo Kojima school of talking about the military and, you know, soldiers' loyalty to each other outside of states, um, which, again, I think this film plays with because that is ultimately what happens, right? The party pulls its card and says, we're in charge of this boat now. We're giving it to you. 
uh, executive officer and the executive officer says, I'm not loyal to you. I am loyal to this boat and to this captain. I promised. I made, mm-hmm. I made a promise. You guys demoted me in the first place. Absolutely not. We're sticking with this guy. Uh, but it does introduce that question, right? I mean, politicizing your military is a very dicey thing for any nation state to do. And uh, some have done it throughout history. And, and you know, don't always go for great. Um, so I just think it's something that's worth talking about. Maybe might uh, warrant conversation. Well, I think the, I mean, the danger itself. What, 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 what specifically is the danger if you have a politicized military that there are ideological political loyalties of it? I mean, can you imagine um, some sort of uh, litmus test and or political brainwashing to pick one of the two parties of the American party system for our military and then an election to happen and the generals to decide, oh, I don't think we like that. I mean, that that's that's fundamentally the formula for what's happened in most of the world at one point or another. Right. And so, I mean, that's that's the real danger of it. At the same time, um, as I was watching the film, you know, the uh, propaganda reel was pretty interesting and telling because it's showing, okay, so when America sp- exports itself, it expe- exports this sort of consumer life, exports the Kennedys, it exports uh, James Dean. The American Dean, Dream. The American Dream. It is a very machines. important part in a Hollywood movie to remind the audience you were a bad guy too during this part of history. And, yeah. th- and then they've got the video from the Civil Rights Movement, yeah. um, you know, which is great because, I mean, those things did appear on the news. But they appeared the day they happened, and they didn't appear very often afterward. And uh, so that, and it's not until much later when archival documentaries are coming together that those images would be reseen. So if you didn't see for the first time you know, the attack dogs or the uh, fire hose sprays or some of those things that are going on, the cross burnings uh, in, in people's front yards uh, in the American South, you wouldn't know about that. And so, I mean – there's a role there, but at the same time, it is fully demonizing your enemy. And here's the thing about the United States is the United States in 1960 is definitely, definitely not without blood on its hands, definitely not without skeletons in its closet, definitely not without dirty laundry. But also, there are good people there. There there are men and women that they would have known and enjoyed the company of just as much, would have enjoyed a you know a glass of vodka with and uh, played whatever, I don't know. Shuffleboard. What do you play on a? I don't know. On a submarine. I'm thinking something with a long table, uh, right? You you beach it in ice and you play soccer. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, Football. They, I'm sorry, you're absolutely right. They 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 would play soccer on you know on the Arctic ice. Yeah. You know, with you and you would enjoy them and you would you know find out you have quite a bit in common. Now that being that does that minimize you know the the sort of you know lovey dovey like kumbaya. Let's all join hands and realize we're all humans and we all believe the same and. Things don't matter. Yeah, thanks for ending war today, Dustin. You did so good. <laughs> you know, it doesn't it doesn't do that. But find you a nice cap and a soccer ball, baby. That's world it, peace. But it is much easier to sort of draw um, a, a mustache on uh, a villainous mustache on the entirety of a culture. Yeah, yeah I really like that opening uh, propaganda scene because uh, the, the, as soon as it happened, I was like, oh man, we're doing the same thing. Like it's it's so great. It, it's one of those moments where it reminds you any time that there is tensions between two nations, they're doing the same thing to each other. Mm-hmm. Man, like it's just. It's such a great start to this movie. And so, I mean, it's a fun twist on the American war yeah. movie, too. I mean, you're going to see that in a lot of classic war movies, especially especially in older days. Yeah, sometimes it's not played as a, uh, a interesting historical anecdote. Sometimes it is part of the narrative of the movie selling, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I also think it's a fun calling card for what would shape the next part of Bigelow's career. You know, this film really taps into two key elements of, of where she would go. Uh, once she did return from her semi-retirement or sabbatical, uh, you know, focusing on that military camaraderie, uh, you know, no matter who it is with Hurt Locker and with uh, Zero Dark Thirty, but also that kind of duality of America, that there are things that go on behind the scenes that are blood on our hands and dangerous to talk about. And I think it's interesting that this is kind of the beginning of that. Like you mentioned off air when you talk about this as her military trilogy, I, you know, I think that's an interesting way to view these these three movies yeah no and again i think it all is lended a a potentially much more interesting uh thematic hook than those other two uh films she did uh by having this element right this idea that some of these people are going to be questioned who are you more loyal to your brothers or your country and it's a very interesting idea uh, well, and we get a little bit of that in Hurt Locker, though, right? I mean, because it's like, what happens if you stick a John Rambo, you know, movie army guy into the real army? 
screws everything up. Everybody right. hates him. It's terrible, yeah. Yeah. What I think was missing from this film to sort of fit it better into um, Bigelow's oeuvre was um, Liam Neeson shooting his gun in the air, you know, in frustration. <laughs> and his love as of, Harrison Ford as, Swift well, surfs off. Well, they did that. When they beach the ice, they shoot the nuke up in the air to see if it works. Yeah. Oh, I wish I could kill you, America! <laughs> they want to do it so bad, but they can't. Uh, yeah. That's why I, we never bounced back from the Cold War as a global culture. It was just one really long uh, four-play session, and nobody got to have sex. So I want just the plot of Jarhead. I want the sequel where uh, where Ford and uh, Neeson start robbing banks in Russia, wearing uh, masks of uh, Russian presidents. Oh yeah, the and... Gorbachev and a Stalin. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, give me my Khrushchev mask. I'm yeah. all about this. Oh, you know, I want the, Gorby. the red scare. I want the Gorby with that big, beautiful birthmark. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fat. It, it is just uh, it, it's interesting to think about because we don't think about it a lot uh, in the United States. Our, our military is deliberately structured to have a civilian in charge of it, uh, but uh, it, it is interesting. And by nature of the office, the political affiliation of that civilian changes, right? So it's it's just such an interesting thing to think about because it's not an aspect of our military culture. Yeah, and that being said, I do think we have to disillusion ourselves a little bit about the American military and politicization because we have to talk about, you know, the Armed Forces Network and we do have to talk about um the choices. I wasn't gonna, I was I wasn't going to say it, but I was thinking about this the whole time. I yeah, mean, the, I know. The, the the mess hall, it's Fox News, guys. I yeah, mean, I know. We, we, we've talked about that on other episodes, we'll talk about it on later episodes to come. I was focusing on this Yeah, look, I Agreed. So there is I, I a fundamentally thing. agree that it's the same issue. Yeah, I was I was kind of dancing around the the brush of it. Uh, we don't get to talk about it head on. I guess I right. Say, right. If Catherine Bigelow makes a movie about the military, she cannot talk about how it is the U.S. military. She can't really engage with the fact that it's a fundamentally uh, politically conservative institution that usually backs one party because that like that turns everybody off for good reason. I, there's you know there's plenty of service people who should who are you know probably. You know, politically uh, leaning uh, to the left, if not you know, out and out. Uh, look, I know plenty of uh, veterans who are communists and anarchists and all other sort of far left things. Tulsi Gabbard, yeah, was in the service. Bingo. You know, and she's so a you, Democratic candidate for president. So what I'm saying is, if you make a movie about the U.S. military, you kind of get the U.S. military involved. They don't want you to say that they're a political entity. So yeah. when you make a movie about another country, you get to engage with those ideas more directly, mm -hmm. and I think that's super interesting. Uh, anyway, so I yeah I know it's worth mentioning. It is you worth know, mentioning. You know, and anybody who has been on a boat, anybody who has been in a mess hall, anybody who has been you know on assignment at any point, been barracked out, has ever had any kind of billet, they you know you know that the media consumption there is is tailored to the right a little bit, you know, and it's just you know it's a thing. So just be aware. Well stated, Dustin. Well stated. And uh, again, I guess what this teases up for is that's maybe what we need, right? This movie engages with an interesting idea uh, about that. Uh, who Who is uh, an armed service more more loyal to? The the people that make it function, the actual boots on the ground, uh, pun not intended, um, or uh, well-deployed figure of speech not intended, or, you know, the, the state that it represents. It's an interesting idea. Yeah, absolutely. Any other major themes or um, points of discussion for this film? Arthur? My context clues lead me to think Catherine Bigelow directed Point Break. I think you're correct. Your context clues have served you well. Good. <laughs> Nothing more. Nothing more. Well, I think with that, you know, finally, finally, we've rendered a verdict regarding that. Let's Our finest, <laughs> finest living film critic. <laughs> this man, I'll tell you what, the finest producer on the air. There's a lot of podcasts out there, a lot of movie podcasts hosted by white dudes, but nobody's got a producer like Arthur Gordon. That's this man true. knows how to put a button on a segment. It is time. <laughs> Dustin, what are we doing? We're going to render a verdict. Show for trash. What do you say for K-19, The Widowmaker, Arthur? I will preface this by saying I really do like this movie a lot, and I would not hesitate to watch it again and probably visit it multiple times in the future. That being said, I think it is disposable. I, I, I think Catherine Bigelow has easily made much better films, much more interesting films, especially in regards to the military complex. We name dropped both of them. Um, and so I, I would definitely, I think, just go ahead and say trash. Uh, there are also better submarine movies, um, which we've also name dropped tonight. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's where I land. It's, it's, not that uh, anything against the movie. It's just you don't need to see this one. Fair enough, fair enough. What do you say, Dalton? Uh, I am also going to preface that uh, I think once upon a time I trashed The Loveless. No, you know what? I think I did shelf The Loveless, but I know that I was very, very soft on that movie. 
that movie is a film I still think about. And we talked about that like a year ago, over a year ago now. Yeah. Uh, I still think about The Loveless. So I did not give The Loveless a fair shake. I am perfectly ready to admit that there might come a time where I have to admit that I like K-19 more than I thought I did. But it is, uh, I've seen every Bigelow movie but Detroit uh, and... Uh, Detroit's good. And Deep Blue. Wait, no, what's it called? Blue Steel. Blue uh, Steel. Those are the only two I haven't seen. This is the worst one. It's not good. I, I like it. I like a lot about it. I think there's a really fascinating movie in there. Um, it's just, it, it's kind of boring. It, it's a hard, go, go check out Strange Days. She, she did a weirder movie before this that was e- even grander in scale and imagination. If you want to see what she's got to say about men in the military, go check out those other movies we name dropped. They're really interesting. Yeah, this is a trash for me, but again, uh, I'll come around on it potentially. I love Bigelow. I think, uh, again, The Loveless is just a, a movie that I keep thinking about and it keeps giving me more, so... There, there might be something to K-19, but today it goes in the trash. I wonder if I've come around on The Loveless as well. I don't remember if I shelved it or trashed it myself. I, I feel like maybe I shelved it. But I think we. I think there's so much good there. It's just, I, yeah. it's just it's kind of it's a weird, laconic movie. But I do like it more now than meanders. I did then. You do sure. too. Yeah. yeah. I, so I'm yeah. with you on that. Man, yeah. Um, we got to go revisit some movies we talked about on the show. But I don't anticipate that with K-19, The Widowmaker. So, so I'm also going to say trash. And so there you go, dear listener. Um, our verdicts are trashes around the way. And that uh, is that mattress, the man. The sub has sank, and therefore, um, we're done. We but are done. We prevented indeed. World War Three. We prevented World War Three, and now we're going to go cure the criminal justice system. That's right, Arthur. Tell them what they got coming next week. That's right. We're talking all about F. Gary Gray's law-abiding citizen. You got Butler. The you voice got of the Fox. cinema came back. They did come back. Mono e mono, Fox v Butler. Uh, it's gonna be a good one. It's Saw meets Die Hard. No, Saw meets. Uh, oh, what's that stupid movie? The Negotiator. No, what's the one with uh, <laughs> with Charles Bronson? Oh God, Death, Death Wish. Wish. I yes. love how you went immediate. This is Arthur went. Arthur went from a uh, a circus uh, like caller to a grandfather like immediately <laughs> it was incredible it was peter what's Falk. that he turned movie into, yeah he turned into peter Falk from the princess bride There's just one more yeah. thing Columbo over here yeah no it's 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 a it's a vigilante movie with uh with shades of with, of uh jigsaw and yeah. you know hyper planning and locked room about, mysteries and, you know and... people wrongfully convicted a thing that definitely never happens in real life <laughs> So yeah, we'll talk. Well, about it never that. definitely happens in real life to white people. Oh, well, the movie is about Gerard Butler being wrongly con- convicted by uh, a black prosecutor. We're gonna talk about shit next week. Yeah, tune in. You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not sure.